I suddenly had visions of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow there, me catching on fire. I'll explain that in a minute. In case you haven't noticed, the, the filter's gone. I was really hoping to go longer than that before it happened. Please grab your hymnal and open it up to 152 for a moment. Before I go there, though, I need to start all of this this morning by reading to you 1 Corinthians chapter 2, from the beginning of it, the first five verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is where I am today. I come to you in weakness and in fear of what my speech will be like, knowing that I do not have words of wisdom because they're just not there to put together the pieces. Apart from the Holy Spirit doing a divine, miraculous work, this morning, I don't have that stretch of understanding and knowledge from the first century to today that I usually have. So, it is in this weakness that I'm coming to you today, and your faith will not rest in the wisdom that I don't have because it's not there. It will be in the power of God. So the place we're going to be in is Luke 2, about glory to God. And we are giving glory to God today, too. Sometimes this is going to sound disjointed, and that's because it is. I want us to also give glory to God and testify to his greatness. I give glory to God today for my new grandson that was born last week. He is perfect. He is just so gloriously beautiful. And I just look so forward to the middle of January when I can put my hands around him and hold him. I give glory that I'm preaching two weeks after a second stroke. even though I'm not like I was. This is what he has chosen, and I don't understand. I I understand some things. Along with the filters not coming off, once a stalk gets there, it just just has to come out. It doesn't matter whether it's relevant to the conversation or, or not. It just has to come out. One of the things the Father has shown me through my strokes 
is that I took a gift he gave me, being intelligent and articulate, and turned it into something to be boastful and prideful of. And part of what he has done is to remove the thing that I was prideful for. I think he will give it back. And if so, I will exercise it with humility, not pride. Okay. There you go. Bonus. Bonus. Right? I always give bonus material there. (laughs) Bonus. Okay, I asked you to open to 152. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on Christmas Eve, 1863. I love this hymn, this Christmas carol. I love the words, but what I love the most about it is the story behind Wadsworth Longfellow writing it. And once we understand where Henry was that moment on Christmas Eve, then we understand the power of these words that he has written for us. By the time he writes this on Christmas Eve, 1863, Henry is already a famous, well-known poet and you know, respected for his works. The carol is actually a narrative. When you read the words, the verses are going in order of his thoughts and experience that Christmas Eve. The heard the bells, their old familiar stories, sweet words, repeat. I thought about how the day had come for all of Christendom. Verse 3, but then I was in despair and bowed my head and said, there ain't no peace. Sorry. The rural South Carolina boy comes out, right? There ain't no peace. And hate is strong and mocks this song of peace on earth. Yet, the moment of realization, yet the bells loud and deep God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail. Then the ringing and singing, the world revolved, and the voice and the chant sublime, peace on earth, goodwill to men. So, Maybe I should have somebody else do this. So Longfellow writes this, as I said, on on Christmas Eve of 1863. Here's the backstory. Two years earlier, his wife's dress catches on fire. He dives on her to try to put out the flames, but unfortunately it's not fast enough. 
and she subsequently dies shortly after from the wounds of the fire. He himself was so injured by the, the fire flames from his wife's dress that he suffered severe burns on his face and other parts of his body and could not even attend his wife's funeral after she had died. In fact, if you noticed, most pictures you see of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow are from the side because he was so disfigured on the other side. And he's the father of six. They were the, he was the father of six children. They had six before she died. His oldest son, the oldest was his son, Charlie. March of 1863, slipped out the house, unbeknownst to his father, and joined the Union Army. On December 1st of 63, Wadsworth, oh, this is the part where I start reading. Uh, I'll just burn up too much brain power if I try to read this too. Start December 1st. Longfellow received a telegram that his son was severely wounded on November 27th while involved in a skirmish during the Battle of the Mine Run campaign. Charlie was shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade and traveled across his back and skinned his spine. He avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. He was carried into New Hope Church uh, in Virginia and transported um, to the river and his father and younger brother immediately set out for D.C. Um, on December 3rd. They arrived by train on the 5th, and Longfellow was alarmed when informed by the Army surgeon that his son's wound was very serious that paralysis might ensue. Three other surgeons gave a more favorable report that evening, suggesting a recovery would require him to be long and healing at least six months. So on Christmas Day in 1863, Longfellow, a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance of his own heart and the world he observed around him. He heard the bells that December day and the singing of Peace on Earth uh, from Luke chapter 2 but he observed the world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this optimistic outlook. The theme of listening recurred throughout the poem, eventually leading to the settledness of confident hope, even in the midst of bleak despair. That's where Longfellow was when he writes these words. I bring that out because it feels so much like today with everything happening around us and in the world. Yet, and some in the culture would say it is foolish for us to celebrate and sing these kinds of songs and proclaim joy and delight and goodness and glory to God because it's so awful. And I would say back, he is not dead. The way Longfellow says it, he is not dead and he and his righteousness will prevail.
So let's go to Luke. Chapter 2. Eight through fourteen. I'll start with verse seven. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel with a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. O Lord, we come to you this morning in the midst of a world where hate is strong and the love of you is weak. Yet, Lord, we stand on this solid truth that your righteousness will prevail and you are still on the throne. And we give glory to you for all the things that we do and have that you and your richness and your joy fill us with your glory so we may reflect your glory to a dark, lonely, and craving for love world. We ask you do this for our good, for their salvation in you and your glory. And I ask, Father, during these minutes that I have left, that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit, that you would speak, for I have no wisdom, but that you would flow through me for your glory and for the good of all these people that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. See, y'all have already made me start crying. So, this is, is that, uh, okay, reset. This is going to be very simplistic because it's simplistic is, is all is all I have. So all I can I can only hold a few pieces of together. And so I was knew this was I just picked this weeks ago, almost two months ago, 
in laying it out for for today. And so I'm reading this and I'm saying, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do here? And three things, lowly, angels, glory. That'll be the three things. We'll start with the angels. He says, Luke says, he writes, the angel appeared. An angel of the Lord is what he says in verse 9. Throughout the centuries of church history, it's all it's been assumed, not assumed, is it assumed? It's been concluded that this was most likely Gabriel. And I think that's the most reasonable conclusion that if this is the angel Gabriel who stands before these shepherds and proclaims to them that Jesus is born. And the reason I believe that is so is because the angel Gabriel by name only appears four times in all of Scripture. He appears to Daniel twice. The first time is in Daniel chapter 8 when Daniel is standing beside the river Uel and he suddenly sees this person dressed in white with a flaming white hovering over the river. If you read Daniel chapter 8, that description of the man, the son of man, standing, hovering over the river, matches the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1 almost perfectly. So Jesus appears to Daniel over the river Uel, and then he says to Gabriel, Gabriel, explain the vision to Daniel. Daniel had seen the vision of the ram and the goat and what was going to be the Greek empire destroying the Babylonian and Assyrian Medes and Persians. The second time Gabriel comes is Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has been praying for the return of the people to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile and for the restoration of the temple and the worship of God in the temple. And Gabriel comes and stands in front of Daniel and says to him, your prayers have been heard. Now I have come from God to tell you these things. And then explains to him about what's going to happen and that Daniel's prayer will be answered for the people to return to Israel and that the temple restoration and the worship will occur. But, there's a but, there's going to be a desolation and a bad thing again in the temple. I personally think that that is at least partially, if not meant to be fully fulfilled when Epiphanes IV comes in in 140 BC and desecrates the temple and stops the Jewish worship and the Mosaic law being practiced until 120 when the Maccabean revolt kicks the Greek rulers out and the feast, you know, and the church and the temple is rededicated and brought back to life and the worship of Yahweh and the Judaic law is restored. That's when the New Testament, when we read the Feast of Dedication, that's 
what we know today is Hanukkah. Okay, those two go together. And so when Hanukkah occurred in 120 BC, that was the fulfillment. And that was a wee bit of a tangent, I'm sorry. Remember I said when stuff's there, it just has to come out? Okay. The third time Gabriel appears is in Luke chapter 1 when he stands beside the altar of incense and tells Zechariah that John the Baptist is going to be conceived and born and then will be the Elijah-like precursor to the Messiah. The fourth time he appears by name is to Mary by the well in Nazareth and then proclaims to her about the conception and birth of the king of the universe. So, in Daniel, each time Gabriel shows up, there's this massive shift in world powers and world government and in worship of God. Big swings. In the New Testament, Gabriel shows up to announce the coming of the precursor to the Messiah and his ministry work. And he now comes to announce the coming of the Messiah, the king of the universe. So it just makes the most sense that this person, this angel called Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, who appears to have the role of special spokesperson for God because of what he does in Daniel and in Luke chapter 1, that this would be the person to announce that the king of the universe is here. If he's going to announce to a people that the king of the universe is coming, surely he's going to be the one to say the king of the universe is here. So he is proclaiming to them, the king is here. The Messiah is here. He has been born. And you cannot disconnect his role in major shifts in world power and the worship of God in the previous places in his appearance from this one. They are the same. One to one. This is a massive shift in world power and in the worship of God because the king of the universe is here. Now, of course, we struggle with the already but the not yet, the partial fulfillment of the kingdom, the rest waiting to be fully consummated, just as everybody did in the first century. But that's for another day. He has proclaimed the king is here. And notice that this proclamation tells them where to find the king. And then a multitude of angels of the heavenly host are praising God and singing this song, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, are some early manuscripts whom he uh, with men of uh, peace on earth among, with men. There's no other place in scripture 
where a multitude of angels appears and sings. Of all the things they could sing, they sing glory to God in the highest. This is just stunning to me. They could sing, behold, the recompense of God has come. They could sing Psalm 96, like we read. He has come in the righteousness of his judgment. They could, they could sing a gazillion things. But they sing glory to God in the highest. That the most important thing to say at the king's arrival is glory to God. That's why we, even in the midst of the darkness of our world, should still say glory to God and give him glory even when we don't understand why we're doing it. The last part is lowly. Gabriel and the angelic host come to a group of shepherds. In the socioeconomic world, that was the lowest class. Jesus comes, Gabriel and the angels and the heavenly host come to the lowest of the lowest to announce the arrival of the king of the universe. This is the most upside down thing in all the world. They didn't go to the temple and say it to the high priest. They didn't go to Rome and announce it in the Roman Senate. He goes out into the open spaces and says it to a bunch of shepherds. And then they're excited. If we read in the next couple of paragraphs, they're excited and eager to go see Jesus, and they do. But just as it was announced to them, the king of the universe is here in a lowly rural village that doesn't have anything to note its recognition and recording of its existence in history, except that David was born there, the king. And that this king of the universe who was promised has been given into the house of David in the city of David. However, this too is lowly. Even though it's the David, the great king, the house of David is now in the lowest estate it has ever been. There is not a genuine descendant of David as the king in Jerusalem. The house of David is at the lowest it's ever been when the king of the universe comes into the house of David. And he comes into the lowest of places. 
We always think of the wooden manger because that's the way the Germans did it in the middle centuries because all they had was wood. The reality is, is that was a, it was a big rock that they hewed out a hollow spot into it. That was the manger that Jesus was laid in. He was laid in a rock. He wasn't even in a house. He was in a barn laid in a rock. The court of the king was a bunch of stinking animals. When, when, a, when a royal is born, they're surrounded by the pomp and circumstance of the royal court. This was the king of the universe, the royalty of heaven, born in the lowest of things, in the lowest ways, and revealed to the lowest people. And he is the savior of the world given to us in the lowliest of ways. But when we think about the life of Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us. His time here on earth was an itinerant preacher. He never had, he never had a church. He never had a building where it's like, come gather to the, come gather on this Sunday morning here and see the Messiah. Never happened. In fact, <clears throat> apart from the times he would speak in the synagogue, he was basically out in the open air. That's not exactly what you would call a, oh, what word? Highfalutin. That's, you don't build credibility holding church outdoors every week. And then, of course, he pays the price for our sins in the most lowliest of ways possible. You literally can't get any more lower than being nailed on a Roman cross and mocked by the Romans and by the Jews. Everything he's given us, he did it in the lowest of lows. Even now, what he is giving you in this moment is in the lowliest of lows. I have the least brain power of anybody in the room right now. I have the least brain function of anybody in the room. Yet my lowest estate is the one he is using to give you these words. He gives us the highest in the lowest for now. But a day is coming where there ain't no lowly for Jesus. Day is coming when he's going to be looking and sounding and acting like the king of the universe. And he's going to bring salvation for those who, who, who trust him. And he's bringing some 
butt whooping for the rest. He's coming and he brings salvation. But we know he has brings, he, he's, okay, reset. He brought salvation already, right? We have salvation by believing in this lowly king born in the manger and living the itinerant Jewish preacher life and being dismissed and mocked by the elites and and dying on the on the most embarrassing place on the planet a roman cross and he brings us salvation and we understand that as all, as all of us who have believed in Jesus for our forgiveness of our sins and our deliverance this good news of what he has done for us but yet it is not just the salvation of our souls and the forgiveness of sins and the deliverance from the kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of light he's still giving us salvation every day everything that that keeps us from being who he's created us to be and everything that he has called us to be and all those things that get in between that and that and this and that and he's the salvation for that too he's giving salvation the the fears that rob us of our joys he's saving us from that the fear of him He's saving us from that by his power of his spirit and his loving kindness and showing us, don't be afraid of me. And and he's saving us from... What words? He is saving us from our brokenness. He's doing all of that now in between the manger and the white horse. Ah, I get it. It's not just, well, that was then and that will be then. It's in between those two is his saving grace in us every day. Living, breathing, growing, Changing, breaking, breaking, chains, breaking chains. Like Wesley sang in And Can It Be? And the dungeon door was thrown open and the flame of light filled the cell. I rose, went forth and followed thee. We put ourselves in prison and he breaks those chains and he flings the doors open and floods the cell with light and we walk out free. Be free. Be filled with joy and give glory to God. And I want you to do that now. I got things out of order earlier I said I give glory to God that I'm here and I'm what am I doing preaching and that I have this grandson that's so beautiful now I want you to give glory give test give testimony to his glory for what he has done for you I mean it speak open your mouths So then Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Lord, 
We plead with you, Father, to pour out your Holy Spirit in Joan and Steve's house. Pour out your Spirit on them so that they will love like you love, that they will find their own hearts bound to these children and loving them as their own, that they would be filled with your love to give it away to these children that can never know your love apart from Steve and Joan pouring it into them. And we pray, O Lord, that these little children will become citizens of the kingdom of heaven and give glory to your name of what you did for them, both physically through Steve and Joan and delivering them and saving them and knowing you as their heavenly father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.